is the Enter Sandman Podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Review, rate it, and rank. Hello, welcome along to choose from so I, I i did the ones i considered and kind of reluctantly rejected were uh dad with no fuel left for the pilgrims i was very tempted to do tesla's great radio controversy i also looked at and i i came really close to it tom petty's full moon fever which is um a great album and we will get to it at some point but in the end the one that i went for was um the one that I thought would provoke the more, most interesting debate, really. Uh, so we're taking a third run at Wasp, and the album that I think most critics and probably most fans, with maybe three exceptions, think is their strongest work of their first six, because everything after that has been pretty appalling, let's be honest. Mm. But, um, yeah. So The Headless Children, is it their best work? We'll find out. Richard, where'd, uh, where did you go? I didn't consider Wasp. For, for some reason, I don't know. I don't know why. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, I, I thought about Tesla. I th- yeah saw DAD. Um, obviously, there was a Rush album that year, which was Presto, which was ooh tempting, but I didn't. Um, and I picked a picked an album. I, I think I've I've nearly selected on a a few other occasions, and I thought, well, it's probably time to give it a spin. Uh, and that is an album by Faith No More, um, and probably their their most well known for maybe a lot of people who aren't necessarily Faith No More fans. Maybe it's uh, the real thing. What about you, Steve? Yeah, trod similar tracks. Um, Dad, yeah, Wasp, yeah, Tesla, yeah, absolutely. And again, d- declined all three and went for Bang Tango's debut album. I and mean, they had an EP earlier, but their, their debut, their first full length album. Um, which was called Psycho Cafe. And, yeah, sounds a bit different to how it did back in 1989. 
when I was much younger. <laughs> yeah. And if anyone doesn't know what Bang Tango sounds like, or Faithman was the real thing, um, or Watch the Headless Children, then let's just chuck on a few snippets now and then we'll come back and talk about all three. <laughs> in chronological order three albums all released in the same year and as we found out this week uh, released in consecutive months so we're going april may and june of that year we kick off with april and uh, the first album we're going to have a stab at is wasp and the headless children mark opening album sleeve notes yes the headless children here it is I'm just holding up the cover for the boys here. Uh, fairly distinctive uh, and well-known cover. And on the back, we get the band. Interestingly, everyone thought they were four-piece four at this point. They weren't. They were a three-piece. And they were using a session drummer, Blackie's friend, uh, Frankie Benali, on drums. Fun cover to the Headless Children. Um, it's a an enormous skull, which represents a kind of a black hole. And then... Um, sitting in the middle of a desert, and then there are millions upon millions of people following them out. These are the Headless Children, and they are headed up by the likes of Karl Marx, Pol Pot, Al Capone and Jack Ruby, uh, Adolf Hitler, Idi Amin, Charles Manson, uh, Chairman Mao is in there. Yeah, it's a who's who, and interestingly, the Ku Klux Klan um, as well. So I think we're getting a picture. This is the album where Wasp grow up. So they develop a social and political conscience. Gone now is the the sort of the cock rock, shock rock template and formula that has served them so well through self-titled debut, The Last Command and Inside the Electric Circus. And in its place, we have an album that, according to Blackie Lawless, pretty much largely all about drugs and trying to kind of do a bit of moralising over the state of drug culture in 
the United States particularly, but globally, he was quick to point out globally. The tour for this album uh, featured a huge backdrop screen on which images of all of these characters on the front were played out to the crowds with a disclaimer that effectively said the band didn't weren't attempting to glorify the actions of the people. For example, it showed um, Hitler addressing the Munich rally uh, in 1938. And it said, it finished with a caption that said, if you do not learn from history, you are forever damned to repeat it. So this was kind of, this was a wasp in education mode, Blackie Lawless in education mode. It was released, you know, a few facts and figures. It was released 1989. Uh, it was on the Capitol uh, label. It runs to approximately 48 and a half minutes. Uh, no idea where it was recorded. Um, even the album, I, I thought, well, it's not on Wikipedia. It's not on Discogs. Uh, it's not on any online resource that I can find. It'll, it's bound to be on the album. It's not, actually. It's not on the album at all. Um, so no idea where it was recorded. It was produced again by Blackie Lawless. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about the production. Mixed and engineered by Mikey Davis, as were uh, was the previous one, and as would be uh, the Crimson Idol. Uh, so the personnel on this, Blackie Lawless vocals and rhythm guitar, it would be the last time we'd see Chris Holmes for six years until he returned to record Kill, Fuck, Die. And I wish he hadn't, because that's a horrible album. Uh, and then Johnny Rod on bass, um, Blackie Lawless having switched to rhythm guitar for Inside the Electric Circus two years previously. It reached number eight in the UK, spent 10 weeks on the chart, got to 48 on the Billboard 200, spent eight weeks there, went silver in the UK. It's a 10-track album, four on side one, six on side two. So after this album was released, he came out and said that when he finished playing music for a living, he wanted to become a senator and he wanted to help people. And this was him 
being an artist and kind of saying what he meant to say. He said, you know, there's a point in your career when you become an artist and until that point, you're just a uh, factory that produces records, which I kind of get. Interestingly, most of this album was ditched from their live show after the Headless Children tour. And today, well, I say today, the last time the band played live, as far as I can tell, is 2018. The only surviving tracks from this album are the cover version, the Who cover, The Real, uh, the Real Me, uh, and the uh, opening track, The Heretic, The Lost Child. So come on, Richard, I'm desperate to know. I haven't asked you all week. This is an album that surely even you have to like because it is wonderfully <laughs> consistent. Yeah, it's a much better album. Yeah, the songwriting's good. The arrangements are better. I mean, it's certainly proof that Lawless is a pretty accomplished musician because he's playing a all manner of things on on this album, isn't he? And, and I think, yeah, there's there's a good balance in terms of, sort of power, attitude, energy, melody. I mean, Crumbs, it's an album that might even have a little bit of soul in the in the absence of cock. That is obviously <laughs> um, production. It's better. It, it is more balanced, but um, Blackie Lawless does like his vocals, doesn't he? His vocals are more restrained at, at times, <laughs> only at times. Um, but I, I think I am realizing that that I, I think I've developed an allergic reaction to his voice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I know we'll come on to the all three vocalists tonight. You know, it's like it's like you know so. What would you prefer to hear? Nails down a blackboard, fighting cats, or mating foxes? <laughs> um, that said, I've enjoyed listening to it. There's some good songs, and certainly, yeah, it's a much, much better album, in my view, than the, the two we've reviewed so far on the pod. Okay, Steve, you know this really well. I do, yeah. Who's that bloke behind Eddie Armin? It's like Mo Salah. What do you reckon? <laughs> I th- it does, doesn't it? I think it's Charles Manson. Oh, right, OK. Sorry, Mo, if you're listening. Um, <clears throat> no, Jürgen's listening. Jürgen, tell Mo he's sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, this is Wasp with a twist, isn't it? It's, um, you know, as Richard says, Blackie will only ever sound like Blackie Lawless, but this is this is Wasp unashamedly trying to distance themselves from the previous album, uh, probably rightly. Um, but also, I mean, unfortunately, distancing themselves a little bit from The Last Command as well, which is a shame. The humour's missing in this album, and that's a bummer. Do I tire of, you know, cocks and shagging and things? Kind of, but it's all part of Wasp, isn't it? And um, and there's an absence of it in, in this album. I mean, reviews of this were massive, weren't they? I mean, mm. basically hailing it, as you say, as their best work. And I, I, I love it to bits. There's enough nice references to the past to keep most fans happy, I think, but the humour had definitely gone. This was a very serious piece of work. There's also something very comforting in the fact that the longer the album goes on, the more it seems to regress towards their debut album, <laughs> which yeah. is brilliant. It's like Blackie was saying, yeah, I'm going to be really radical, and you kind of sense that in terms of, you know, the heretic and, and, and the headless children, you know. I, I'm, I'm being really earnest and clever. And then within, sort of within half an hour, he said, nah, fuck that. Let's give them more school days or something like that, which they never do, sadly. I think Black is basically announcing in his own, you know, egotistical way, the end of cock rock. If, if, if he's stripping off the makeup, then everyone else should too. And this is the future. And, and to be fair to him, I mean, I'm, being, I'm, being, I'm being, only being, you know, slightly acidic. 
music was evolving, wasn't it, in 89? And, and I don't think he was daft. I mean, I think he knew that hair metal, glam rock, whatever you want to call it, cock rock, was kind of on his last legs. And he was just jumping, wasn't he, I think. But I wish he'd consolidated this album because it, because he didn't, as you know. You know, the Crimson Idol was a misjudgment, I think. I, I think he, he, this was almost worth repeating a couple of times, but I think Blackie was out of control by now, wasn't he? On a mission and doing his own thing. Yeah, the the ego had landed, I think, by this yeah. point, hadn't it? And yeah. um, there's a there's a let me talk about sort of the cock rock and and the references back to the the wasp of old. I think I absolutely completely agree with that. Side two is pretty much kind of the regression to the point. Well, we'll talk about which other wasp song Rebel uh, Rebel in the FDG sounds like and which chorus from that other song you can sing along to it quite happily yes um, because it is exactly the same uh the lyrically other, as well. yes it is yeah um yeah just wild and bad interchanged yeah. uh, there's a hilarious um interview with the he did with the canadian tv music tv show hosted by a, a very nice young woman who and blackie mentions the fact that they used to use women on a rack as part of the stage show and she asked it not unreasonably whether that was just sort of slightly degrading and debasing. <laughs> and and he had the brass balls to say, no, it's just theatre, um, which is hilarious. Uh, but anyway, let's get on and let's go and give a listen to it. Um, side one, I, I think um, side one kicks off with the heretic brackets, the lost child. This could have been on the Crimson Idol. I, I'm almost convinced it was written for the Crimson Idol uh, because it's got a very similar kind of soundscape going on to it. Very ethereal, very orchestral beginning that ramps up and ramps up and ramps up and then kind of heads into this sort of colossal riff. Yeah, I tell you the one thing about Blackie Lawless, which you know, I don't think anyone can argue with, he can write a hook line. And I, I think the one thing that Wasps do have whether you like them or not, is the ability to write stuff that gets inside your head. But you're right, Richard, it's all about Blackie's vocal. I guess he would argue at this point in his career he had stuff to say and he wanted to make sure it was heard. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I think what's a little bit disappointing is is the guitars have got a fair bit to say in this. There, there are some really nice riffs throughout this album, including on the, the opener. And I think it would have added to, really added to the the energy and the pace, what is already, I mean it's, a, I mean, it's a bold opener, isn't it? Seven minutes long. I really like the riffs. I'd have to listen hard for them. I mean, where they do come through, they're good. I like the speed up. I like the finish. It's a, it's a good opener. Well, let me supply the hyperbole then that you two aren't going to. This is just one of Wasp's greatest ever tracks. I mean, it's just so unexpected as well. I mean, just 18 months earlier, we'd been trying to find the good in tracks like, you know, I Don't Need No Doctor and Sweet Cheater and some of the other shit off circus, which I like, by the way, mm -hmm. um, in its slightly tainted, crappy way. I do like it. But this is so far removed from that. Um, driven along by Frankie Benali, you know, take a, take a bow, Mr. B. Um, what an addition to the band he was. And this is over seven minutes of blinding metal, never relents, couple of superb riffs, um, and not so amazing solo, admittedly. And Blackie, I'm sorry, Richard, but Blackie never sounding better. Mm -hmm. by, by any measure, I think this is a stunning opener. I always have. It is a shame that the 
that the guitars are lost in it, I think. You can hear them in your head rather than on the record. You know what he's doing, you know that they're there, and you know what they're meant to be, how they're meant to be driving it through, but you can't actually hear them. Um, it's a real shame. But we go from the 7 minutes 40-odd of The Heretic into, well, the mandatory, obligatory cover, which Wasp are very fond of doing. This one is a cover of the Who song from Quadrophenia, uh, The Real Me. It doesn't pass our cover test because I listened to the Who version, of it, re- reminded myself of the Who version over the week, and they don't do really, other than heavy it up a bit, they don't really do very much with it. This, however, is Blackie's, well, I was going to say it's his one indulgence. The whole fucking record is Blackie's indulgence, but this is his indulgence because he's a massive fan of the Who, and this was his kind of tribute to... Townsend, in fact, when he finished it, he sent it to Townsend to ask him for his opinion. Townsend rang him up and said he loved it. Um, We'll gloss over the fact that by the time that phone call happened, Pete Townsend was virtually deaf. Um, But, um, yeah, this this is a absolutely unapologetic tribute to The Who, and they do a very decent, faithful job of it. Track two? No, thanks. Not for me. Not after The Heretic. Just when they've got you by the balls. You're immediately deflated by an average cover. Some great bass playing by Johnny Rod. But it's not their song and it's okay and it's absolutely not what I wanted to hear second track on the album. As you say, I think, why why track two? Fine if you want to do it, but put it somewhere in the middle of side two. Johnny Rod's bass is is impressive until you Mm. then listen to the original... (laughs) which which is on another... where the bass plays on another planet. It, but as a cover, it's it's all right. It's all right. Yeah, so All Right goes into the title track, which is just absolutely epic. It's a anthemic, a quite disturbing song, actually, when you kind of really get into the lyrics. And, I, 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 you know, say what you like about Blackie, and we do, and we laugh a lot about it. But um, actually, as a lyricist, I think he's pretty good. Whatever the message is that he's trying to convey, whether you think that's worth saying or not worth saying, doesn't really matter. He manages to, he manages to, I think, really frame his thought in a really coherent way. Um, this is the second track that's co-written with Chris Holmes. Um, it is a monster of a song, and I think, you know, for me, this is up there with with the Heretic. It is one of the big highlights on on the album. Again, it's let down by the production. It's let down by the production because this has got a massive riff going through it. Um, It's got all sorts of kind of weird and wonderful and spooky and unsettling and unnerving sound effects. Um, And the whole, you know, it it is a song that is absolutely greater than the sum of its parts, I think. Hmm. Well, of course, it's got the... uh... The big addition of Ken Hensley as well, isn't it, from Uriah Heap on uh, on Hammond organ? We did what was it? it was easy living, wasn't it, off of uh, yeah. Electric Circus? Uh, so massive Heap fans. Uh, so they got got Ken in. I mean, and when the when he when the organ comes in, it really makes a big difference uh, to the song. I wish I wish they'd used it more, even more than they did. I mean, it is this isn't like Wasp at all. This song. In terms of it's, it's got so many dimensions and and layers. Uh, I mean, it's got a good good gallop under the solo. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's brilliant. I mean, it's, you know, after the, the rude interruption that was the real me, this is, we're back, and as Richard said, this is some new wasp, you know, much slower pace than the heretic, yeah, slow pace, but twin paced again, every bit as, you know, atmospheric and dramatic as the opener. Um, and that, re reference to what you were saying, Mark, if you want to see written and heard lyrics that snap and spit and scan absolutely perfectly, in this case, against a brilliant bass line, look no further than the headless children. You know, Lawless never got it better, I don't think. Well, not since Animal Felt Like a Beast. That was perfect. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's the title track. I mean, just colossal. But it goes into something that is, um, well, it's got a, this sort of very gentle piano, but it goes again into this kind of enormous, beefy, heavy, smoking song with this gang chorus that's kind of involving a cast of thousands including um the girlfriend of chris holmes lita ford in fact there's a credit on the album uh from blackie thanking lita for keeping chris hot make of that what you will anyway thunderhead a song about drug addiction um and written after Blackie dwelt on this encounter he'd had in London from a, a junkie who'd come up to him and said, I want, thank you for saving my life. He said, what do you mean? She said, I listened to BAD uh, from the first album, nothing to do with drugs, um, but it had a line in it um, that I can't remember the, the actual line, but it raised for her a picture of her own addiction and she apparently got clean. Whether that's just an apocryphal tale designed by Blackie Laws for the benefit of giving some narrative to the album, who knows, but it's about drug addiction and it is really quite unpleasant thematically, not mm. musically, because I love the song. Yeah, it's a great song. It is a great song. Um, I, I, mean, I actually thought it was far less thought-provoking than um, or exciting than either Heretic or the title track. Um, and I do find that there's a talking bit in this that I find seriously annoying when he goes all... What? dramatic and meatloaf on us because it's all ah, meatloaf theatre yeah the points of steve's yeah it, yeah it is paradise by the bash, dashboard light isn't it it is it is and it's unwelcome it's so unwelcome in contrast to the track itself which is again yet more sort of you know new wasp you know wasp that we've not heard before and it's not it's not as good as as, as the other two biggies on side yeah. one but um i still like it yeah it's got got very good gallop to it hasn't it Nice double bass drum work. Uh, the, the drums really th th do thunder along, but I find the production on this one is a lot mushier. Yep, agreed. Well, Thunderhead closes side one, and it closes the uh, collaboration for this album, at least, between Blackie Lawless and Chris Holmes, because side two, in its entirety, is written by Lawless alone. And it opens with his tribute to Chris Holmes, a song called Mean Man, which for a long time was my favourite track on the album, um, simply because it's got the word motherfucking in it. And we didn't hear that very often in 1989 on records. It's very hooky. It's very catchy. It's as poppy as this album gets, with the possible exception of Rebel in the FDG. Um, and I think it sums up, lyrically, I think it sums up Chris Holmes perfectly. It's got... Fantastic hook line. This album was one to two years after the uh, decline of Western civilization, part two. <laughs> so, yeah. if this is the capture of Chris Holmes in a swimming pool with a litre of vodka, it would be a, even though, as you say, this is more old classic wasp. 
it's just got the right little amount of attitude and and the 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 motherfucking is it it it's nicely put in uh, it's not in your face uh, no. so it, yeah this works for me scans perfectly <laughs> well it wouldn't have done on the radio mix it was the first single off the album wasn't it i don't yeah. know what they replaced it with but um because i didn't have it as a single but it's interesting, isn't it? Because Mean Man, of course, was also the name of the documentary film released about Chris Holmes, released early this year or last year, whenever yeah. it was, can't remember. It depends when, what year anyone's listening to this. Yeah, pr- proving that Holmes is still alive and kicking, I think, more than anything else, which is a surprise <laughs> to many who saw a decline of Western civilization. So this is the beginning of a, of a great side for us old wasp heads, um, because this is a, a definitely a bit more old school about this. Heavy and it rocks, and it's a, it's a right good throwback. To a previous one, and I actually understand on first listen why you thought this would be your best, why this was your favourite track, Mark, because it just resonated, didn't it, with with what yeah. we knew and loved, I think, um, and it yeah, it still sounds great now for all the wrong well, reasons. <laughs> yeah. Since we've mentioned uh, the decline of Western civilization, um, according to Lawless, um, make of this what you will, Holmes was goofing around. He wasn't drunk. Lawless says he was playing up for the cameras. Uh, his mum was sat, if you remember, by the side of the pool. And Lawless said, You just wouldn't behave like that in front of your mother. Apparently, there was a take of that interview done earlier in the day when he was absolutely stone cold sober and very and being serious. And it was canned. Apparently, the band fought hard to have the sequence that was in the film taken out because mm. of obviously that all kind of stood absolutely against everything that this album stands for. So, um, so yeah, from a PR point of view, you can understand why Blackie would like us to think that Chris <laughs> was actually just pissing about for a camera crew. Um, I'm not sure I believe that, but there you go. It, 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 if so, he is the best drunk actor <laughs> in the world ever and deserves an Oscar. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so track two, side two, um, is the Neutron Bomber. Now, votes please, you two. Is it about Ronald Reagan with his finger on the trigger? Or is it about Blackie's friend, Ronnie, who used to burn things down and went to a lunatic asylum? Because he originally said it was the former... And um, more recently, he said it's the latter. <laughs> I um, like the idea of the I like the idea of the latter, just because it follows on from last week's load. And what is it about Ronnies in um, yeah. Mad Ronnies in in in, in North America? Because <laughs> I mean, Metallica's Ron is about what someone who shot up a school, and this yep. one's about someone possibly who's you know a pyromaniac by profession or an arsonist or whatever. But <laughs> yeah, and they murder. have to be called Ronnie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, as a song, again, it's classic Wasp, really, isn't it? It's it's well, actually, I think the Neutron Bomber is is probably the one song that kind of bridges the gap between the two, old Wasp, new Wasp. And for that reason, I don't think this works particularly well. I, mm. I like it, but I think of the songs on the album as a suite, I think this is one of the weaker ones. Not the weakest by some way, but it's got a perfectly decent chorus. Um, it's got a nice little hook line because obviously that's what Blackie does well. The drums again are fantastic on it. Um, lots of SFX and what have you, but yeah, it's neither one thing nor the other for me. I'd, I'd put this firmly in the old wasp camp. 
it's not just the some of the subject matter, is it? The, the, these songs, you know, this one in particular, are, are just far simpler. The the complexity is yeah. on the first side, isn't it? I mean, they, these are just yes. all fairly straight ahead, chuggers, rockers, bang your headers. Uh, it, yeah, it's all right. It's it, it's fine. Steve, you're a fan of the Neutron Bomber. Yeah, it plays to the sort of ball crusher in me and things like that. So um, I, I like that era, as you know. Um, I think it's fine. I just it's it wouldn't be my strongest on side two, but then again, it's not the worst on side two either, as you're about to reveal. <laughs> so we come to an instrumental of about a minute and a half called the Mephisto Waltz. Apparently, Mephisto Waltz is something to do with the Molotov cocktail. I don't know. Don't I have? Absolutely no understanding of why it's on the album. I'm not sure what role it plays. Um, it it just to me it just holds up the album. It's all right. You can you can't say it's bad, but you're never going to say it's great. I didn't even mean no. Mephisto Waltz. <laughs> that wasn't what I was referring to. I've ignored it. It just doesn't exist as far as I'm concerned. So I'm thinking that fa- uh, Steve, you're not a fan of Forever Free, which is uh, essentially Black is tribute to Leonard Skinner. So it is his, and I quote, it's our free bird. I think most critics would say this is their best ballad. Um, that's a fairly small pond to fish in, I have to say. Yeah. Um, I actually quite like this. I don't know what to like, I must admit. He's got, he, I mean, he doesn't do Southern rock. Is, is it Skinner? More like Poison Light. Um, I just think it's, <laughs> I think the chorus is a bit naff. This is not a great moment, Mark, in, in the Wasp story. The outro is a good romp, but um, no, no, it's, no, no, it's, definitely no. Steve, it's not going on a playlist, but I don't hate it as much as yeah. you do. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it's fairly big and decent, so, yeah, this is all right. This is all right. Yeah, I think it's all right too, unlike the next track, um, which I don't like very much at all. I think it's really simplistic, simplistic even for Wasp. It's got a typical kind of wasp kind of riff gallop to it. Um, but they do this so much better, not only on other albums, but on this album as well. So, you know, I don't think there is a bad song on, if you forget the Mephisto Waltz for a minute, I don't think there's a bad, a really bad song on this album, including this one, but it's at the bottom of my list. It's, it's I just find it really utterly forgettable. Really do. Yeah, it's a shame, isn't it? It's got all the pace of something like a Hellion or On Your Knees, but it's just, but it's more anodyne, isn't it? There's no, there's no violence or spirit to it or anything, and it is very simple, which is, which is the Wasp way, and they, and and they're good, at, and they're good at simple, um, and it does rock, but it's a bit bland. It's a shame because it starts off so well. I mean, that starting riff with the bam, bam, bam on the the drums and the bass. I mean, it could almost be a Megadeth riff, and and then. The production lets this song down because once it sort of get, just gets going into that fairly standard gallop, it, it's all just mush underneath, really, and and then just all about Blackie's voice on top. Well, for me, uh, they haven't obviously saved the best to last, but it's not far off. I absolutely mm. fucking love Rebel in the FDG, um, or as I like to call it, Wild Child, um, <laughs> because it's... Um, because it is, it's just classic, classic rock wasp. It's got this amazingly catchy chorus, which they've just ripped off completely from Wild Child, including I'm a Wild Child 
come and love me, or I'm a bad child, come and love me. <laughs> Whichever you take, this is Wild Child. And I'm very happy to see it back on another album. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree more, given how good Wild Child was. Yeah, I'm fine with this. I think it's brilliant. Absolute stonker. Great way to finish the album. Real proper basic kind of knee to the groin riff. Really hooky. I like that little tone down before the finish. And then, yeah, that phrasing where he sings, I'm a bad child, priceless. It just takes you back. I don't know who he meant it to. But... In my head, I'm thinking he originally wrote, I'm a wild child, and then went, <laughs> <laughs> no, I've done I've that. I've done that before. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll change it to bad. Yeah. <laughs> I felt the solo lost its way a bit. Um, I'm not sure about the smoke, the spoken bit. Yeah, it is more. this is more standard Wasp. So yeah, Nothing wrong with that. But a weak, weaker ending for me. Okay, well, it'll be interesting to hear what your highs and lows are then. Well, I mean, if I start, my low is yeah, I don't like Forever Free, but I don't like it any more or less than the real me. Probably the real me, I guess. Um, and the high, oh, the heretic, just brilliant. Absolutely adore it, Richard. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to score Mephisto Waltz. Um, down there, where else is down there? Pretty yeah, probably Forever Free, the the real me as well. And you no, know, I, I, I apologise if I wasn't didn't seem into, too enthusiastic about it because I think my favourite track is the opener as well. Yeah, well, that's a that's a clean sweep for the opener. I think as the favourite. Um, look, the Mephisto Waltz is going to score the lowest mark because. I understand why everything else is on the album, uh, even the real me. Uh, I don't understand why the Mephisto Waltz is there. So that will get the lowest score. But, you know, in terms of proper songs, um, it would have to be Man Eater for me. I just, it's just a bit meh. Um, so there you go. We'll score these and put them in the Hall of Fame a little bit later on. But it's time to move on. And it's time to move on, um, well, by... I don't know. Uh, I don't know exactly what date in April Wasp was released, but it's probably about four weeks before Psycho Cafe from Bang Tango. Steve. Opening album sleeve notes. Hmm. Some end of the decade sleaze um, by a band that, listen, let's not pretend this is amazing, but, you know, this is a band who had seen what the likes of Guns N' Roses were offering and, um, fancied adding a bit of funk to that mix and um that was the sound they came up with does it work is it very confused i'm sure we'll discuss this further i'm still not entirely sure myself i don't think i ever was um i do remember liking it when i first got it um in as much as i loved pretty much everything that came off the sunset strip in the mid 80s um it's the late 80s um it still felt like the mid 80s i just thought everything about then was kind of cool as fuck and therefore you know worth having and i enjoyed this so the selling point for Bang Tango is definitely the, the sort of funk feel that runs through this album. I mean, it wasn't unique at a time when bands like, you know, we were talking about Faith in the Law in a minute and, you know, bands like Living Colour and Extreme and, you know, forget all the stuff that Run DMC and Beastie Boys had done. So, you know, funkiness into the realms of metal wasn't particularly novel, wasn't particularly unique. I mean, there was a novelty element to it. But in the realms of hair metal, perhaps more of a rarity. Um, I like the review that called it refreshingly offbeat. Um, which could be a euphemism for absolutely anything, but was definitely meant as a compliment. And it is a bit different in a marketplace, certainly the glam side of the marketplace, which was trying to change or was kind of changing, having to change perhaps. Um, indeed, another reviewer stated, and it's a very fair point, that had Bang Tango with their look and their distinctive style, they kind of look like Vain and Guns N' Roses. Had they left this a year or two, they wouldn't even have been lumped in the hair metal bin at all. 
um, that have been hailed as you know more alternative possibly um to me it still smolders as a kind of hair metal rate i think um but anyway um the band from la um who knew formed in 1988 had the look had the sound because they spent all their time on the strip they also had the contacts prompted a bidding war for their services some might find that hard to believe um mca won that ahead of atlantic um bang tango took the mca deal said it wasn't great but the cash was up front and they were in a hurry um, and this was released 12 months after they were formed and they'd already squeezed in an EP in between time as well. So, um, yeah, they clearly were in a hurry. Um, so May 29, 1989, it came out, 41 minutes long. The producer was Howard Benson, some kind of new kid on the block. This was only about his second or third album. Um, and he ushered the boys down to the fire station in San Marcos near Austin in Texas um, to do this. Um, the personnel, well, let's save the most interesting to last. On guitars, we have Mark Knight and Kyle Stevens. On bass, we have Kyle Kyle. Um, so good they named him twice. On drums, we had Tig Kettler. Um, and the vocalist is a man by the name of Joe Leste. Um, and he will be discussed, trust me. Um, highest US chart position, did all right, 58. Not bad for a debut album. Possibly at a time when people were running out of interest in this sort of stuff. Um, 10 tracks, five on each side, and as I say, 41 minutes long. Bringing on the attack of my main problem or problems first it does get a bit repetitive but basically it's fucking joe leste's voice which rubs me up the wrong way he is the bastard son of axel rose without any hint of an apology for sounding and phrasing exactly like the great man it's like they held a gnr soundalike competition to recruit their lead singer and leste won it hands down um except of course he's not as good as axel who isn't great anyway as for the album as i say that th there are some moments on it i like yeah, there's some originality on here. Generally, whenever they get into a dance mode with the bass guitar, I like that, you know, and it is kind of experimental and different and interesting. And, they, and, and let's face it, they chucked the world and his wife at this. They threw themselves into it. It's a big noise, full of power, full of moments, plenty of drama, lots of energy, um, but a little, and also some sort of, you know, moments of charm and 
delicacy. I can't believe what I'm saying on this. I'm like painting this extraordinary picture. It is quite an interesting album, not a write-off by any manner of means, although that's what I think. Maybe you two don't agree. I don't know. Richard? Yeah, I, I do remember Someone Like You. That was the single, wasn't it, I think? Um, it was. And, yeah, when first put this on, and certainly the... The, the first couple of tracks, probably even into the third, thinking, yeah, yeah, this is this is good, this is good. There was some, there's some real groove there. As you say, some really good fusion of styles. There was some, the funky bass playing is is uh, brilliant. Uh, mm. I, I love that right throughout the, the whole album. I think it's produced pretty well. Uh, good interplay between the guitars, uh, but yeah, uh, Lestay's voice. Oof. Yeah, I, I um, <laughs> says a lot when I realise, oh, yeah, all things are relative. I would prefer to listen to Blackie. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, where do you start with this? I, I bought this album when it came out. I think I played two tracks of it, and I remember why when I put it on. Why I only got two tracks into it. And that's because I don't understand the first track. For me, to my ears, it bears no resemblance whatsoever to anything else on the album. And I wish I'd persevered with it, because actually there's some really good stuff <laughs> on this album. And when you're forced to listen to it in the way that we are for this, you can't hear that, and you're prepared to... You 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 have to... You know, we have to sit and listen, often to things we don't much like or think we don't much like, for a whole week. So... You, you kind of have to resign yourself to the process and, and have an open mind. And when you open your mind, there's some really good stuff to hear on this album. But there's also some shit on it. And and that's the problem. Yeah, you know, Lester's voice, there's one particular track, I can't remember which one it is. There's one where he sounds like sort of a cross between Axl Rose and Jim Kerr from Simple Minds. And you just think, well, how does that work? And why does that work? <laughs> But, you know, you're right, Steve. When they get dancey, when they get kind of really funky and poppy, that's when, for me, this album works. The, the back end of the album, frankly, I just think it's, a, I think it's an absolute dog's breakfast. I, and, you know, if they stopped at track seven, I'd have been quite happy, probably. For, for me, there's lots and lots to admire on it. And there's some stuff where you, I just sat either in the car or in a chair, shaking my head, going, why have they done this? And the album opens up with Attack of Life. It's got an odd, almost sort of jamming intro. You haven't got a clue where it's going, straight up. And then it gets quite groovy, bass-driven. And then the riff kicks in, and it's a beauty. It's all big and bouncy. Second car, second guitar comes in to, to add some weight, and this twin guitar approach on this is good. Makes for some decent noise. And then, and then, um, our man on the mic comes in and you are hit with this absolute caterwaul. Um, I'm used to it now because I've remembered the album, but if first time of listening, you're hit with an absolute shriek fest. But he does bring it back for the chorus a little bit, but you might argue that the damage has already been done. Luckily, he's not totally shrieky throughout the track, nor throughout the album, but Christ, um, you know, give me King Diamond. <laughs> The point is, it's got you're so happy with the beat and the groove and the feel of this song. It's it again, you know, the word unique. It's not. It's different and it's nice and it's good. But um, lest they just shreds it in a bad way. Are, are you happy though? Are you? I'm not. 
I'm not happy. Huh? I don't. No, I don't. I like I said, I don't. I don't get. It. Why did they open with this? There, there are huh? so there are some tracks on this that you go. Well, that's a bang on, nailed on opener. So why didn't they open with that instead? And, and it, yeah, inevitably, this is yeah, this is all one man's opinion. We're each the opinions that we're giving. All the opinions of one man. So yeah, other people might really love this. Yeah, if you do, see great. For me, this is too fast a pussycat for words. But with worse vocals, and it's hard to be worse than "Tie Me Down." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we'll come to "Tie Me" in a bit, Richard. I think I thought I understood why this is first because it is different. This is a kind of prick up your ears thing. Oh, right. Okay. I really like the groove. I like the dual guitar. I like the funk. Uh, I can tolerate his voice at this point, even though, as you say, it is a bit of an onslaught. But I don't mind this as an opener. Mm. No, I don't mind this. Okay. Well, I'm guessing, Mark, you'll prefer track to someone like you, um, which was the said a big hit off this album. I'm, I'm not even sure how, how well it charted. I think it charted all right. It was an MTV favourite anyway. It was a staple on there. And it's a song that, yeah, resonates of, of that time good thunderous bass line going on, some mean guitars over the top, very G&R chorus, but basically a, a, a seriously good, catchy tune, plenty of sass, a mean track, like it. Yeah, I went back to this and still enjoyed it. It's got a great groove to it. I mean, there's a fantastic bass line, real <laughs> thumping bass riff. And there's a good illustration about Lestay's vocals, about where he can sing, because yeah. he certainly... When he tries to get all sort of uh, Lowy and Asprey, Billy Idol, that doesn't work. <laughs> At the other end, Axel Rose on Helium doesn't yeah. work. But yeah. actually, somewhere in the middle, there's a uh, half-decent voice. But anyway, I, I, I still think it's a great song. I like the changes, like the builds, lots going on, good riffs. Uh, yeah, this, this is good. This is good, Mark. So, you, you know when you go on to like... Um... A website to buy something they've got one of those price sliders that you have to drag to the, to, to set your budget for whatever it is that you and and they they are remarkably hard to get to so that you get it where you want it so you're sliding it back 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 and then you've gone too far so you slide it back the other way and then you've gone to, and you've now you've set the price too high and then, and and there is no place on the scale where this man sounds comfortable. <laughs> uh, it's a fantastic song, ruined by his voice. And yeah, I said to you, didn't I, early in the week, there are times with all three vocalists that we've, we've been listening to this week where you just want to tear their arm off and beat them to death with it. And, <laughs> and unfortunately, I do that quite a lot with... With him and and I have the same issue with Bang Tango. I've decided that I have with Faster Pussycat, which is fantastic band ruined by their singer, and that ultimately will do for them when when we get to to marking it. That is such a good song that he ruins. The first one I just, I just don't like Attack of Life. It gets yeah. better from here for me. Okay, but he's still presumably going to you know, agitate you with the good songs as well. No, there are a couple, there's two or three songs where I'm I actually. I don't notice him, which is probably damning <laughs> the faint praise. You know? yeah. he'll, be, he'll be most offended. Yeah. Um, well, I suppose he does. I mean, he turns it right back on, on Wrap My Wings, certainly in the, in the first verse, which is shamelessly nicked from Demol's Destroll, which was out the year before. But it's a very cool song. It's, it's sort of slow and sultry. It ultimately gets very catchy, pretty heavy, a whole lot of fun. 
he he can't contain himself and goes off um, inevitably. But I, I like Rat My Wings. I think it's all right. That, I really like this. Really mm. like Rat My Wings. I think it shows that he can sing. But I really like Rap Your Wings. I think it's really hooky. It's got a great groove to it. Um, and I, I like the kind of the, the walking guitar through it. Um, I'm trying to put my finger on who the chorus reminds me of. I think it's a Scorpion song. Is it? Uh, it's off. It's the zoo. That's it. It's the zoo. Mm. Okay. Yeah, Finally. yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess it surely must have been a feature of the of the strip at that time and if you wanted to be successful you had to have a vocalist who could sing like this seems to be uh, you know mm. um hardly unique yeah hardly on his own in that is he yeah, yeah. there's some in really inventiveness on this track isn't there there's uh this has got some good personality um and i like the guitar work on it again i think there's some really good guitar work throughout this album yeah that is true, yeah. Um, and bass work again, um, and breaking up a heart of stone is certainly elevated by Kyle Kyle's bass bass line, um, which kicks off the song and just doesn't stop. There's a decent groove going on here, um, but again, Lester's voice is this is this is the point, which is the first time I'd actually started pining for "Tie Me Down." So I, I, I've done I've done better than you, but musically, this is a great little number. Loads of atmospheric little bits and you know, cheesy pre-chorus. I can deal with that. Good chorus, decent solo, but yeah, basically this is all about that bass. I like breaking mm. up a heart of stone. Yeah, good bass riff, really hooky chorus. Again, lots of energy. If I had one bad thing to say about this, is essentially it's got two parts. It has a verse part and it has a chorus part, and that, mm. that's it. Uh, so to make that last five minutes is just. A bit too much. Three minutes, it could have worked. Yeah, fair comment. Track of the album for me. Fantastic hook line. Really catchy, really catchy chorus. This is this is where he sounds a bit like Jim Kerr. Um, and he actually sings this. We don't get, I don't think, unless I missed it, we don't get the shriek. He, get, he gets a bit sort of overexcited at, at points, but <laughs> not, not to the point where you kind of, thinking, oh, for God's sake, shut up, like I do for quite a lot of the other tracks. Um, side one finishes off with Shotgun Man, which is the shortest track on the album, and pretty funky. There's a new level of annoying from Leste, and this is one of those songs which has got more than a whiff of GNR in it. I mean, it could come straight off Appetite. Um, it's overpowering, that whiff. And it's a bit messy, but short enough, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's a GNR kind of karaoke. Really, and for me to just to add to that, I do find the sort of bass and drum only verse very annoying. <laughs> um, doesn't do a lot for me at all. This one, okay. Well, we'll turn it over and we'll kick off side two, which starts with Don't Stop Now. Um, I, I, I love the opening to this great beat, great vibe, and again, it's you know, it's beefed up second time when the Second, get all the both guitars come in, and but then it all goes very fast to Pussycat, very Babylon, and that's more than a little bit tiresome. I do like that groove, I do like that vibe, but it just veers in a pretty horrible direction. Yeah, not much to add. Yeah, so it's, it's a bit sort of rockabilly, isn't it? Well, next up is Love Injection, which I'm immediately thinking of Love's an Injection, 
by the mighty, the majestic Hallow Rocks. Because there's a kind of super funky rhythm piling through this, punctuated by something a little bit heavier. And then you do actually get a kind of Hanoi Rocks chorus, which you, you thought, whoa, okay. So they've nicked the song title almost, and, and then they're going to be give you a Rocks chorus. Although if you're expecting anything as good as that, forget it. The, the, the nominal similarity is all that makes you think of, um, of Love's an Injection. And like, it, like I need to say it, Leste is no Mike Munro. But that said, this is kind of nice and dirty and catchy, and it's cool and it's funky and it's not bad. Um, Axel's back again, isn't he? On this, um, <laughs> now I've, I've kind of th- this is the last point at which I, my tether and I are attached to one another, um, <laughs> because the problem here is that so much of it is just completely derivative. There's so much good, unique stuff in every song. We can argue about breaking up a hearthstone but generally speaking you listen to it and you think they've been there's some really inventive stuff they've kind of been quite innovative in the way that they've approached that sort of kind of fusion between funk and metal and grunge um and and that kind of dirty sunset strip sound that you know was was all the rage at this time but then they've kind of they, they've put it all together in a way that is utterly derivative of better stuff that was around at the same time. I read a, read a review today where um, whoever it was, and it was it wasn't a fan. It was a it was a legitimate critical review, and they described the band as pioneers. And I'm just thinking, mm-hmm. right? Well, let's 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 take on the ballad, the weird ballad, according to Leste, um, just for you, which was he apparently wrote it on the day they packed up at the studio. So if it feels like an afterthought, it probably was an afterthought. Um, and it is, and I think this is quite an oddity on the album, you know, which is all about energy and power and disco and, and funk and, you know, vibe. But it's also about, but I guess it's also about attitude, this album. And I guess, you know, this kind of fits to that extent. It's got a nice acoustic guitar line um, underneath Leste's, you know, restrained vocals. And it's okay. Got a bit of a Cinderella feel to it, if I'm honest. And it just goes on a bit. <laughs> yeah, well, that was the other thing that they, they did. Uh, people have accused him of out kefering kefer, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just think back to the first time I played this, and I was waiting it, waiting for it to go somewhere. Yes, and waiting some more, and and some more, and some more. Uh, oh, right, it's not actually going to go anywhere, and and it's such a shame because I think with the inventiveness on the first side, it would have been fascinating to see what they could have come up with uh, in a slower song. You know, if you think think about, you know, how you know, it's a bit like Faith No More and, and the Chili Peppers do with the slower songs. Um, so it's it's a shame. So yeah, not not great. Well, it's a bit worse than not great. I think it's um, it's really not great. <laughs> <laughs> They're going straight back to Funk Central with "Do What You're Told." Um, all slappy bass lines and funky acoustic guitar chords. It's pacey. It's okay. There's some nice lead guitar work from Kyle Stevens. I, I, Lester at the end of this almost explodes. He's so out of control. And, and bear in mind how out of control he's been thus far. To be able to even recognise a lack of control is extraordinary in itself. It's almost getting beyond a joke. I've, I've had enough now. I, I want it. I just want it to end now. Yeah, but it's such a shame because the main riff. I mean, it's, I mean, very. Very Chili Peppers, very living colour, yeah. super yeah. funky. 
musically yeah. I really like it and he completely ruins it completely yeah. ruins it yeah yeah and and that's the story of the album they finish off in that vein I mean with sweet little razor which again is different again there's some innovation and some nice touches I love the start to it slightly different to what's gone before well in fact I love the whole feel to this song um but which is again ridiculously appetite for destruction, but a bit punchier, mm. a bit less disco, um, although still grooves, just less blatant perhaps. Um, I think it's a really good finish to the album. And just when I've kind of given up faith a little bit, um, I really like this again it, because it's slightly different. It's showing another side to um, to Bang Tango. Yeah, I mean, it, there, are, there are some absolute Mr. Brown st- stone ripoffs yeah. <laughs> throughout this song, aren't there? But it's all right. Yeah, it's all right. So, I mean, good bass under it all. Yeah, the chorus, I've just put painful, painful, painful. <laughs> but I think as a whole, it's quite an interesting album, quite enough difference in there to make me think that they're not actually that derivative. There's enough musicianship to make me think that they've done things with it. Yeah, and I'd, I, I think I'd broadly I'd agree with that, actually. Anyway, let's do some highs and lows for, for this one. Um Richard, what do you reckon? Yeah, bottom is uh, just for you, the acoustic number, and uh, still really, really like someone like you, so that will get my high. Yeah, well, I think I've got a feeling that just for you might make a clean sweep here, but certainly it's my vote as the weak point, and yeah, well, breaking up a heartstone uh, was definitely my high point, uh, and that is, um, you know, that and Wrap My Wings are the ones that are going on playlists. Um, no, I've given Don't Stop Now as the lowest scorer for me. And yeah, someone like you, someone like you. Excellent stuff. Um, so let's fast forward. That's two of the three albums um, for our 1989 special, this episode of the Enter Sad Men podcast. One more to go. Fast forward a few days, I would imagine, to Richard and uh, the real thing, Faith No More. Opening album sleeve notes. Yes, we're talking about Faith No More's third studio album. Uh, the real thing. Uh, it was released actually on June the 20th, uh, 1989. And it was their real, real big breakthrough. And uh, one of the reasons was it was the first album to feature new vocalist Mike Patton. Uh, Mike Patton replaced uh, their previous vocalist, Chuck Mosley, who the band had uh, become increasingly annoyed with due to, surprise, surprise, drink and drugs. And I think one of the last straws where where he actually fell asleep on stage when when they were playing live, so they decided perhaps uh, he wasn't the man for them anymore. Um, my pan arrived and didn't have long because all the songs were already written, and I think even you know, recording had, had pretty much begun, uh, and uh, he had a, a matter of weeks to. Uh, write the words and then uh, get them down and uh, and record them. Uh, he did ask whether some of the songs could be uh, rewritten and was told resoundingly no, and he had to work with what he'd got. Yeah, and here we are. This is uh, this is where they ended up. I think we'll come to it, I'm sure. I think some songs, it works. Some songs I still feel probably, yes, those vocals were a bit rushed, weren't they? But anyway... Uh, it was recorded uh, December 88 through to January 89, and the LP length is uh, 43.22, and it has nine tracks on it from Out of Nowhere, Epic, Falling to Pieces, Surprise You're Dead, and Zombie Eaters Side One, 
and then the real thing underwater love the morning after and woodpecker from mars on side two personnel wise so you've got the older members of uh, faith no more mike borden on drums roddy bottom on keyboards bill gould on bass and james martin on guitars and they say they were joined by mark Patton on vocals Preceded Angel Dust, the other, you know, the other part of their big breakthrough, and uh, came after Introduce Yourself, which was released a couple of years earlier. It was re- uh, recorded in Studio D in Sausalito in California, and produced by the band and Matt Wallace. Uh, released on Slash and Reprise Records, and it did pretty well. It, uh, it it ended up doing platinum in the US, got gold in the UK, uh, got to thirty in the UK chart, uh, 35 weeks here, and uh, got up to number 11 on the US chart. Earned them a Grammy nomination uh, and uh, and really um, I mean, put them at the top of playlists and you know, huge plays on MTV and the like. And, um, yeah, that's what it really all took off for them. Uh, so, yeah, we've got another band um, that from that time, you know, really starting to meld different styles, particularly, you know, funk and rap and metal all into one with some various other bits and pieces thrown in. For me, they've always been a, a pretty unique band. I mean, it was interesting in the comments we talked to a little while ago about uh, Bang, Bang Tango. I mean, Faith No More, I, I think, really did uh, look for their own sound and um, just went for it. Obviously, there were comparisons with the Chili Peppers, but... Um, I mean, yes, I guess they're similar, but I, I've always felt they're, they're completely different bands. And uh, is this my favourite Faith No More album? Uh, I probably, probably not. Although some of the ones that it, um, we could consider, we can't because obviously we only got to 1995. Um, but it's got some classics on it. Um, it's got a couple of not so good bits and pieces, uh, but I, I've enjoyed going back to it again. How have you two found it? I wanted nothing to do with this in 1989. Nothing at all. Absolutely fucking hated the idea of what these bastards were doing to my beloved heavy metal. My ears were firmly shut. I absolutely love it. We knew, we, we kind of knew this kind of music was coming, didn't we? Because we'd seen the Beastie Boys and what Anthrax and Aerosmith had done in respective collaborations and other bands. And music was evolving. We knew that. We explained that with Bang Tango. I'm just not sure I was ready to embrace this at the time. It's it's funny, and God, how childish does this sound? I, I remember reading a Kerrang! review of um, Faith No More, uh, uh, an American festival somewhere, probably about this time, 89, um, and they hadn't gone down well. Um, I, I think it was a kind of metalhead crowd, not quite understanding what they were about. And I remember, and I still, even to this day, I still remember that review, and thinking at the time, ha, that'll teach you which is pathetic, I know, but there you go. That's kind of where I was um, with Faith No More. I wanted them to fail. I wanted them to leave me, leave me. I was happy with hair metal and thrash. Go away. You're ruining my music. And I'd also heard Epic um, ahead of From Out of Nowhere. If I'd, have heard them the other, if I'd have heard those two the other way around, I think I'd probably have had a slightly different view because I love From Out of Nowhere more than Epic, which I do think is, well, it's not Epic, but it's very good. But the, anyway, the bottom line is that there probably is not a band out there and i've been racking my brain in fact there isn't a band out there that has grown on me retrospectively quite as much as faith no more i just think this album is absolutely fabulous um now i don't need to buy it it's all on spotify um music on here is brilliant wonderfully arranged i've had an absolute ball going back to it didn't get it at the time 
make no apologies for that. Sure as hell, get it now. And um, yeah, there's one there's one track on here I'm really not fussed about. The rest I think is genius. Love it. Yeah. So, uh, uh, um, a bit like you, I just thought, what a bunch of pretentious wankers. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, the world went mad for Epic, didn't it? it? You know, that was you couldn't move for hearing that song. And I resented it every time I heard it um, because for exactly the same reasons, Steve, as far as I was, I mean, <laughs> Christ, if I'd known Nirvana were coming, I was, <laughs> <laughs> but for me, this was like, what the fuck have you done? You know, this is just, this is just sacrilegious nonsense. Um, I loved, um, I absolutely loved Midlife Crisis. But yeah, I, I I just thought, oh god, this is just absolutely shit, and I absolutely love it. I think it is just they they are nothing like the Chili Peppers to me because I I have a I have a lot of issues with the Chili Peppers. There there's a, a part of me that thinks they are a bunch of pretentious wankers still, but this this is just high art, uh, but not in a pretentious way. It's just beautifully done brilliantly composed brilliantly structured yeah and there is and every song has something in it where you just go oh my god Mm. that's amazing the difference between mike Patton and leste and um (laughs) and blackie is actually it's about becoming attuned to it the first couple of songs you're going oh god that's a bit whiny a bit nasally but then actually you realize that it's absolutely perfect for the for the album and when you go back and you listen to those songs second time it's not an issue it's absolutely not an issue so yeah this has been the highlight of my week with Patton's vocals um I mean he does have an advantage in that he he can actually sing (laughs) Uh, I mean he was I mean he was very young he he was very young at the time I I mean of course what's fascinating as we know with with you know, the subsequent albums, you know, starting with Angel Dust and, and then even more so on, on the later ones, you then realise actually the full, uh, the full, you know, the breadth of his range is, is huge. So, he, I mean, he's actually, you know, using a very limited um, a, a, amount here. Uh, good, I'm, I'm glad, glad you've enjoyed it.
We start with a freight train. We start with an absolute fucking freight train. Um, from out of nowhere, uh, one of my favourite cuts uh, of theirs, uh, I think is absolutely brilliant. I mean, brilliant bass line, brilliant drum line. And then, it, I mean, this is the thing with Faith and Morris, he's carrying this quite delicate keyboard melody over the top. Um, you know, there's a break into a slower chorus, take a breath, and then you're off again. And then there's a melodic bridge in the middle, and then you're off again. Uh, and, I mean, and then it just goes and goes and goes. Um, oh, yeah, I, I think it's colossal from out of nowhere. And isn't it the great thing about the, the keyboards all the way through this? It's It's not how well you can play the keyboards. Everything's about sound. It's all about the soundscape that comes with that those lines, which often don't change. Um, I just think it's genius. And my view on Patton is that um, he's an off-the-wall singer for an off-the-wall band. I just think it fits perfectly. I just think it's absolutely spot on for, for the kind of product that they're creating. Yeah, love this to bits. And I, I, the video is amusing. I love the video when they're effectively taking the piss out of the lights of, or he is, out of the lights of Coverdale and, John Bon Jovi with his kind of well you've got to see it it's very funny but it's it's a brilliant song it's an absolute yeah absolute freight train lovely stuff yeah love the way it picks up that kind of melody that that dancing melody all the way across it and then it picks up the sort of the riff drops it down picks it up again I just just gobsmackingly good well, there's not a lot more we can say about that. You must know it already, but my goodness, it's still good. Let's move on to, to track two, uh, which is the aforementioned epic. Probably, yeah, it's got to be their most famous song, hasn't it, in terms of widely known? Uh, I mean, this amazing fusion of rap, funk and metal, this punching bass line and drums, with you know, big ringing power chords over the top, spitting vocals, um, still a, a, quite an amazing melodic middle section and a solo, and then a, fa a piano fade out at the end. It's still surprising when I go back to it. Uh, what, what's the it? The it that it's about? Well, allegedly it's about drugs, both the, the good and the bad. And it's just, yeah, I think, I, yeah, it sounds like we might all be agreed. Not as, I don't like it as much as the opener, but I still think it's an amazing, unique piece of rock music. I think people went mad for this because it's got that absolutely soaring, S-A-W-I-N-G, soaring riff in it. And I think that's what people latched onto, this, that they were doing sort of, and I think for the first time, they were doing rap with Metallica-style heavy metal. It was just, mm. you know, you'd never heard this before. The, the problem with Epic is it's been overplayed i think there was a point where it was my favorite track on the album it hasn't been for quite a while i find it i find it interesting that it wasn't um an instant hit was it it was um a it was released six months after the album came out and in turn it took another six months before its sales kind of went through the roof so i think people were still there was still a wariness wasn't there about what they were trying to do i guess you know within the marketplace but yeah like you i think this is this is absolutely as good a fusion of you know simplistically rap and metal as there ever had been at that time um and i still think it was probably seen as something of a novelty perhaps um the way they bring in that sort of you know guitar solo it is very different it was very different felt very different at the time as i said i didn't get it and i love it now i love it it's, yeah it's not as good as from out of nowhere but it's, it's a brilliant song absolutely brilliant song Epics followed by an amazing baseline that, that leads us into uh, falling to pieces. Uh, here we've got, I don't know, we've 
we've got it's this is a lot pop here isn't it there's lots of energy song apparently about not knowing what to do with your life lovely balance uh, between piano and guitar um, you know rap and the singing from Patton I mean he does get a bit nasally on this doesn't he but yeah it, it, um, it's poppy it's boppy and it's got a really hooky chorus yeah it's, it's probably a bit too poppy for me um, it's, it's the weakest of the three so far always been less bothered about it and it was interesting Billy Gould I mean the, the, the bass guitar does drive this massively and he didn't like it particularly as a song he said he certainly claimed it was very dull to play live. I, 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 having never played the bass, I wouldn't know. But um, it does groove. It really does groove. I think it's it's a poor relation to the two that went before it. This is for me the the, the high point of the album so far. Uh, <laughs> um, I just love the hookiness of it, and that bass line is is just completely infectious, isn't it? You just <clears throat> can't help but move to this track. And um, I think this, this more than the other two, really kind of exemplify what Faith No More do so well. We talked about Bang Tango, or I talked about Bang Tango, not being unique or innovative. <laughs> just, just need, they just need to look a month ahead, you know, to, for that, because this is, this is completely different to anything that was around at the time. And this is just brilliant, just brilliant. Track four is called Surprise You're Dead, um, written by Jim Martin uh, when uh, he was it, uh, well, earlier on in the 70s, when he was he was actually in a band with Cliff Burton. I mean, this is uh, proper, proper heavy metal, isn't it? <laughs> I've, I suspect this is one of the songs where Patton didn't have much time because uh, the lyrics are pretty simple, although they were co-written by Martin. But the riffery on this track is unbelievable. I'd love to know what Patton thought when he was given it in the first place, given the complete contrast to anything else that was on the album. Oh, I love this. This is, I mean, this is obviously right in my, uh, <laughs> right in my goal mouth. Um, I just love the whole thrash. This sounds like a piece of mortal sin or possessed. Um, that riff is to die for. And I love, and Patton's totally OTT vocals. You know, you'd think it was a piss take, um, but they just added, <laughs> the char- they added the charm of it. This is so short. It's just a, it's almost like an interlude and it's perfect. I love it. So let's move on to the last track on side one, which um, would appear to be a much quieter song. Is this Faith No More's ballad? Uh, well, maybe. Not. Um, so, yeah, so, so this this is uh, Zombie Eaters. Re- really lovely sort of atmospheric start, acoustic guitar, really nice synths. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> your ears are assaulted and it goes into this absolute fast chug of a drum-driven riff. And what I love about this song is, if you ask me, it's always a song that tries to go quiet again and never quite makes it. <laughs> Eventually, they, they just manage it, just sort of the last 30 seconds or so to, to quiet it down again. It, it, this is one of those songs that, that just deserves your full attention. This is the third song this where, during the week. It's the third song where I've gone track of the album. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure it is. I'm still not sure it is. I'm still undecided yeah. 
what the scores are for any of these because every time I listen to this album, I hear something else. And I think that's the track of the album. This is just brilliant. It's five. I mean, yeah, this is this is a clean for me, a clean sweep of a side. Just they just don't drop. The the quality just doesn't drop at all. Amazing. Yeah, nothing to add other than to say this is my track of the album. Simply adorable. And again, that haunt that haunting keyboard line through the running through the back of this that just barely changes and just adds such an extraordinary dimension. Whole thing whole thing just a, a, another sonic start sidestep proving that you know faith and the more were you know in a, in a class of their own all right let's flip the album over track six first track on side two is the title track the real thing um uh, again starts really atmospheric like drum clicks punctuated by power chords and bass and then i, I don't know i mean i mean some of the riffs it then breaks into, I mean, not dissimilar to Rammstein, I thought, you know. Um, real thing for me, it's too long and it doesn't grab me as much as anything on the first side. And I feel, it, I mean, there are so many different passages in this, some of which I really, really like, some of which I'm not quite so bothered about. This track has got to me this week um, and I don't quite know why. I, I think those kind of drum ticks at the start, Bella Lagos is dead. Yeah, I'm getting that with that. And that takes me back to a time anyway. I've forgotten how stunning this was and, and, and having given it this week at the benefit of a forensic listen that I would not have got anything like 30 years ago. Um, and again, that keyboard, that synth line, whatever it is, that machine gun staccato vocal, such a complex, such a layered piece of work. It drops back, the drum taps again. Whew, yeah, it's got to me. And that pre-finish, bit, a bit like on Zombie Eaters, just so heavy. Um, and so frenetic. I read a really good quote. Corns, uh, Jonathan Davis said, "Faith the more prove that you could be heavy, but not necessarily metal." And I think that absolutely sums us up. Awesome, and it's not too long for me. Yeah, no track of the album for me as well. Um, and, and again, if you'd asked me at the beginning of the week what my <laughs> favourite track on this album was, it wouldn't have been this one. Yeah, yeah I mean, it deserves a ton of concentration, doesn't it? This is you know, yes. one of those songs you can't put on in the background. Underwater love. Um, is it? Would you agree? Is probably the most straight ahead song of, of the of the album. Yeah. Maybe not ploddy, but it, it's uh, it's certainly not got the the energy of of, of the others. I was going to use the word come down, but that's 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 really derisory, isn't it? And 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 wrong in so many ways because it's, it's a really good track. It just bounces along, and where it does come into its own is that there's an almost jamming cool casual outro um behind Gould's bass line which i think is brilliant um if you listen to this on its own if you if you, if you take this track mm. away from the album and listen to it, you think that's absolutely brilliant yeah it's a lovely bouncy song but boy yeah coming after zombie isn't the real thing it's uh damned by that isn't it but no i think it's really good i really like it okay uh we've got two tracks left uh and track eight is the morning after, uh, and uh, well, the bass is back for this one. Um, absolutely thundering bass from Bill, Bill Gould. Again, underpinning this this lovely melodic guitar and the, the, these these wavy keyboards. I mean, it's got a lovely groove. This, I, I mean, I love the various guitar motifs over the the funky backbeat. Um, just load more energy. Um, I think. Mike Patton's voice really, really works again well on this one. 
I think it's a fantastic song. I, I could listen to this all day. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you read my notes. Now that's my. I've got two problems with this. The first is it's too short because, like you, I could listen to that that guitar and keys line over and over again for as long as I want to play it. My second problem with this is that. We've already. This is this is the second track we've done on the pod called "The Morning After," and I'm almost embarrassed to admit I've scored this one higher. <laughs> but there it is. I know. <laughs> See, I, I'm embarrassed to admit that the very first time I put this record on and looked at the track listing, I was hoping that this was that cover. <laughs> um, but I'm glad it's not. I, I'm not sure I can be bring myself to be quite as honest as you, Steve. Um, <laughs> feels like a betrayal in some way yeah, to say it's better it does. doesn't it um but this is just it's for me i think you've already said it it's it's that interplay between the keys and the guitar it's just gorgeous okay so how do we how do we how do we describe woodpecker from mars the, the final track well firstly it's an instrumental and instrumentals don't usually do that well on this podcast it starts with a very sort of you know this almost you know, arabic feel then the chords kick in, and then it just goes absolutely mental. You know, you've got this heavy funk metal underpinning almost a Middle Eastern keyboard melody. You've then got this middle breakdown with super distorted guitars, then a mad solo, then back to a monster riff, and then back to this sort of this heavy funk Arabia, or I don't know if you've got a better description of what it is, uh, to finish. I mean, I put a, a line here, you know, madness or genius. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, it's just, uh, and I think, and the, the line below I've written is, there's only one band that can do stuff like this. That's really interesting, because the one thing I've said, I've said, in the hands of other bands, you'd simply say, this doesn't work. In the hands of Faith No More, a Faith No More, you'd simply say, it doesn't work, but that's okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's almost kind of chilled, and I and, oh, fuck it. You know, it's just part of this incredible, you know, canvas that, 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 that they've painted. It's just not quite the finish of the album I wanted. <laughs> well, you say that, the last two minutes, 20 seconds are. Yeah, they're good, yeah. Did you describe it as Funk Arabia? Yeah, he heavy Funk Arabia. I think that's a brilliant description. That's exactly Isn't what it? this is. It's heavy Funk Arabia. This is a, this is a track that I heard the first time um, this week, and... I really quite liked it. I just thought it was really good, really interesting. Second time, I hated it. The third time, I quite liked it again. I think it depends on what mood you're in, <laughs> because I quite like it now. Um, <laughs> but it is absolutely bonkers. I, I'm not entirely sure what to make of it. I don't entirely. Yeah. Sure, I'm not entirely sure why it's there, other than for them to show off kind of all of the bits they couldn't fit into the other songs. I imagine. <laughs> yeah. All right. So. There is Faith No More and The Real Thing, the third of our albums. Before we go on to the scores, we'd better have some highs and lows. Steve, do you want to go first? Mm. Yeah, Woodpecker from Mars is the low. I mean, it's not a low score, but it's a very difficult one to score, um, but it's certainly lower than anything else. Um, and my highs, oh, i tell you what, there's three or four. Um, I've given it Zombie Eaters. Yeah, wood, Woodpecker from Mars... But yeah, it is my low, and then my high is the title track. I just, I just think it's brilliant. I think it's absolutely <laughs> uh, I I love Woodpecker from Mars. I just think it's it it, 
it leaves you with a feeling of what was that? Yeah. Um, so it, it's not my my low score. I'll, I'll give that again. It's not low. I'll give that to Underwater Love. And ooh, ooh, ooh. well, I, I think I've still got to go back to from out of nowhere and just the sheer impact that that has, even when I put this album on today. So there we are. Faith and More, Real Thing, uh, third of our 1989 albums. So that followed Bang Tango's Psycho Cafe and Wasps, The Headless Children. We now better go and score all of these track by track so we can see where they're going to slot into our Hard Rock Heavy Metal Hall of Fame. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. Okay, so time to put some scores on the doors for these three albums. Uh, the Headless Children from Wasp, uh, Psycho Cafe from Bang Tango, and of course, The Real Thing, Faith No More. We started off with Wasp, The Headless Children, released earliest. And, well, uh, I said to the boys at the beginning of the week, if this ended up in the bottom 50 again, like The Electric Circus did, um, then, you know, Frank Dahl's going to give up and go home. It, I don't think it has with its score, um, but we'll find out in a minute. Um, Steve, you gave it a 7.35. Richard, you gave it a 7 dead, and obviously I liked it a lot. So I gave it a 7.7. To give it an overall average album score of 7.35 and all the threes. So that was Wasp. Um, Steve talks through the scores for Bang Tango. Mm, I didn't. I didn't need to make any prophecies about Psycho Cafe. I always fancied it would be in the bottom half dozen or so. Well, maybe higher than that. But anyway, it's yeah, a few too many fives and sixes in the scores for this, and no great surprise. Um, so yeah, Lois, Richard, you gave it six point five. Mark, you gave it six point six eight. I just cleared seven um, with a seven point oh five for an album score of a pretty disappointing, but fairly expected six point seven four three three three. Um, different story with the real thing, Richard. Yeah, yeah. I and I, well, I've always liked this album. I, 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 I thought you two did, and my goodness, you like it more than I do. I, so I gave it an eight point one 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 one. Steve, you liked it a bit more than me, and gave it an eight point three 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 three. And Mark liked it more than both of us, and he gave it a whopping eight point seven four 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 four. Uh, and that leaves Faith and Animals a real thing. Well, I think that could be threatening some uh, higher places with an overall of 8.396. Let's see with then where they all have ended up in the Hall of Fame as we walk over there now and open its hallowed doors. It's time to put the rock in a hard place, opening the Hall of Fame. So there you go, three more albums into the Hall of Fame, um, episode 64 of the Enter Sad Man podcast. And, well, we need to look high and low on the, on the charts for um, for these three entrants. Let's start with the low, shall we? And Psycho Cafe, Bang Tango. I flippantly said it would wind up in the bottom six. I'm wrong. Um, more like the bottom 26. But, yeah, it's, it's down in the 6.7s. So Psycho Cafe is at number 172, and there are 192 in uh, our league table of excellence, or less excellent in the case of this end of the field. Um, yeah, just below Anvil's Forged in Fire, just above the runways, waiting for the night. That's where we put Bang Tango Psycho Cafe. A um, bit further up, The Headless Children by Wasp, not great, but um, not bad, 119. 
um, sandwiched between Rage Against the Machine and Hanoi Rocks. There's a triple billiard play and see. Um, and then, and yeah, Richard was right. Faith in the Moors, the real thing, has threatened um, the big beasts um, at the top of the leaderboard. Didn't quite make um, the top five, but it's eighth. Eighth in, um, you know, when the seven above it are back in black, Ride the Lightning, Led Zeppelin, Four, Machine Head, 1984, Metallica and, um, and Black Tiger. So uh, we thoroughly enjoyed the real thing, have we not? Mm. Yeah, uh, the, the, the old observation I've got has got nothing to do with those three albums. It's merely to say that the quality of what's now in this list means that um, accepts balls to the wall has now dropped out of the top 100. <laughs> <laughs> what a great spot. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> Which, if you'd, if, if when we started this, if you asked me to predict where Balls to the Wall would end up in the final list, if ever we get to a final list, I'd tell you, it would have been in the top 20 or the top 30, probably. So yeah. um, I think that just goes to show, doesn't it? Uh, what what doing this forensically uh, actually uh, actually kind of achieves in terms of putting the albums where, well, does it belong there? Well, our system says, yes, it does. If you're a, if you're a massive Accept fan, you're probably holding your head in, in disbelief. But there you go. Um, well, what I would say, just just one final footnote. If, if you're a Wasp fan, slightly dispiriting to know that three albums in and they've yet to break the top 118. So, um, you know, there's some, there's some pressure on their debut album and The Last Command. I'm sure they'll do it. What, are you telling me that Still Not Black Enough is not going to cut the mustard? Yeah. Okay, right. Well, at this point, what we would normally do is we'd um, thank you all for joining us and... Uh, tell you that we'd be back next time and sort of quietly disappear off to kind of do some research for next week's uh, for the next uh, edition of the podcast but we're going to do things slightly differently because we thought actually one of the things that um, you might want to be kind of a party to is the selection of the album so what we did we decided that we'd do our reveal for the next show on this show. So earlier in the week, um, we spun the Tico Torres Tombola of Topics and Themes. And uh, for those of you who are new to the podcast, uh, the way that works is essentially we use a randomizer and we have a list of topics and themes that are associated, each associated with a number and the randomizer picks out a number and we do that thing. Or if we don't like that thing, we spin the randomizer again and we do something else. But on this occasion, it spat out supergroups. So um, the criteria for this, so just so that we're clear, the criteria for this was a supergroup is not just a, a group that is super, because that would just be too easy, wouldn't it? Because um, you'd have the whole of the field to go at all over again. So the criteria were it had to be a band that included at least two members who had been each been in a different well-known band so there you are that's the definition of a supergroup. um because we're doing this live we have no idea what each other have chosen uh, we've got some we've all had to also choose two reserves just in case they got duplicated um so here we go this is it this is the first time that we've seen what each other have chosen um 
I'm going to start in my top right hand. No, I'm going to start in my bottom right hand corner so that Steve understands how this is going to work. Um, so, Richard, <laughs> do you want to reveal your supergroup choice and say a little bit about it? Okay. Amongst the people that I really, really like and you know, loved over the years, uh, two of them are the uh, guitarist from Journey, Neil Sean, and uh, Mr. Sammy Hagar, more so as a solo artist than necessarily before, you know, before he became extra super famous with Van Halen and with Chickenfoot. So Hagar and Sean uh, in uh, around uh, the... the Early mid early eighties, um, got together with two other people. Um, a guy by the name of Ker Kenny Aronson, who uh, is a, a bass player, played with a whole load of people, and uh, a guy called Michael Shreve, who was the drummer in Santana. So we've kind of got we've, we've kind of got Montrose Santana, Santa, well, Montrose Journey and Santana all together in a band, and they produced an album called Through the Fire. And uh, that is my choice for, for this next episode. So Hagar, Sean, Aronson and Shreve, and Through the Fire from 1984. Okay. Steve, I'm thinking yeah, you're so not going to need the reserve at this point. No, def <laughs> no, definitely not. No, no, no. I've, I've come across this band by chance when, we would do, when I did um, Val Wow's um, Cyclone. A few weeks, a few weeks, a few episodes back, and I touched on the fact that we were doing the guitarist, weren't we? And Kyoji Yamamoto was my guitarist of choice, and he had appeared in a band who I'd never heard of, a supergroup, a sort of put together supergroup called Phenomena, and that made me think, and I was curious to find what Phenomena were all about. And so, when you look at the cast list in Phenomena, you've got people like Glenn Hughes on vocals, you've got Budge's John Thomas on on guitars, you've got Neil Murray on bass, Cozy Powell on drums, and a whole load more. This whole thing was kind of put together in the mid-80s. And they did four or five albums with a, with a massive roster of different instrumentalists. I've no idea what it's going to sound like because I've not heard it. So I've chosen the first album by Phenomena called um, Phenomena. Um, and it was from 1985. So I'm fascinated to see what this is all about. Wow. Now, this is going to be a voyage of discovery, isn't it? Because my choice um, is... Well, let me go back to 1980. Yeah, 1980. Dennis Stratton is fired from Iron Maiden because he's a bit too lightweight. He likes bands like Steely Dan and you know, Cream, and that's not heavy enough for Steve Harris and Rod Smallwood, so they get rid of Dennis Stratton, the guitarist. Dennis Stratton then hooks up with Jess Cox from the Tigers of Pantang, and they hook up with a whole load of other people who've been in Michael Schenker Group, UFO, and so on. And they form a band called Lionheart. And it's their one and only album called Hot Tonight from 1984. A big solid slice of Dennis Stratton fueled AOR. So there you go. Those are the three choices for the next episode of the podcast. It's going to be fascinating. So thank you for joining us. We are going to do the bit where we slip quietly out the door and welcome you to next week's or the next episode of the pod, uh, which will be along very shortly. Thanks for your company. Hope you've enjoyed it. And we're going off now to listen to three albums. I don't think I've heard either of your two. I'm not sure whether either of you have heard mine. Um, so it's going to be it is really a voyage of discovery this week, isn't it? <laughs>
All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service.